Great. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here. Welcome to the specially curated panel by Save the Music and Ma Dukes, who is backstage. Of course, she is Jay Dilla's mother. It's such an honor to be here. My name is Azia. I am the founder of Fusicology, and as I mentioned, I'm honored to be on the stage with such icons. My connection to Dilla was that I was his friend and also his agent in the early thousands, his DJ agent. And um, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Maureen Yancey, better known as Ma Dukes, the mother of the late, great Jay Dilla. Also joining us is the absolutely magnificent DJ Jazzy Jeff. Please join us on stage. And also please welcome Stone's Throw founder, Peanut Butter Wolf. Along with the beat junkie himself, J-Rock. Thanks, y'all. I'd like to begin the conversation with you, Ma Dukes, <laughs> and we'd like to discuss the life of Dilla as a person leading into his musical career. All right. Where do I start? Okay, uh, I guess we start almost at birth, huh? He had perfect pitch at two months old, okay? He never slept nights, so his lullaby music was patting him on the stomach and him gurgling in perfect pitch with his dad's bass runs. And he was an um, upright bass player. So you know how when you practice and you go up and down the scales and, and you're hitting it, and it seemed to soothe him and he could go to sleep. That is when we knew that he loved music. But that's as far as we took it, because we both were music lovers. Dilla began to enjoy listening as we had party music and uh, he was in his playpen, and we could entertain till late night. Never a cry, never a sob, just looking around and listening to the music in his playpen. And he got tired, he'd go to sleep. No problem there, so we entertained a lot, okay? <laughs> and uh, at, at that, uh, he was um, open to listening to different genres of music, as we had a lot of uh, individuals that came to the house for his dad to help curate their music trained them for vocal appearances and uh, auditions, and maybe for Broadway plays, but that's how he used his time when he wasn't working at Ford Motor Company, and um, we enjoyed it. Dilla, um, his favorite person as uh, he was growing into his first year was James Brown. We knew this because within three beats of any James Brown track, that was played. He would be up against the playpen, holding onto the net, and some of you are old enough to know that the playpens were just like a net. Okay, I had like a old hair net, and holding on and dancing profusely, but without the remembrance that he could not walk or stand alone. The music took him into a different space and he was not afraid. Uh, we knew then that, geez, he's not afraid to, you know, take that risk and stand up and dance. And he knew distinctly when the record was almost done, the last few beats of the song, 
we noticed that he began to look paranoid and ease himself down along the net. So we knew that he threw, you know, care to the wind when it came to music. His lullaby music was anything jazz, anything Motown, and of course, being a Detroiter and being raised in Detroit and loving all the Detroit artists and different genres of music, he was open to listening to all of these things. It was his day was to listen to music of different genres. When his dad would be at work at Ford, I get to play the music that I grew up with that I love so much, and that was classical and opera. So he got a little taste of that. But nobody else in the family liked that. So that was my free, free time that I got to enjoy what I grew up on. Mr. Yancey was a jazz musician and also a doo-wop singer. And he was listening to that. Uh, he had different groups that would reminisce and come by the house, and they do the doo-wop together. And then they sing a cappella. Uh, he was a jazz musician and even played um, during uh, his group, the Ivies played halftime for the Globetrotters when they were here in Detroit and, and local places, you know, cities close by. But Mr. Yancey still, he hit that punch that clock at Ford Motor Company. Because, <laughs> you know, in the arts, you cannot depend and raise families on that alone. And uh, he had two families that he had to raise. So that's pretty much how he started out. A love of music, different genres, even country music blues, whatever. He loved it all. And uh, that was how we got him to go to sleep because he, he liked to be up at night, you know? He didn't know that sleep time and that his dad go to, had to get up at five in the morning. So, you know, we had to do our best. And there was a thing called tempera drops that you would give a child if they had fever or needed to relax. And so we were like, I think we should have bought stock in that because we used it a lot when we just when he just wouldn't succumb to the sleep, and we had to give him a couple temper drops and like calm him down, let him just please go to sleep, you know, kind of like thing. But yes, his entire life revolved around music. Uh, we bought music for him. He would go record shopping because he was such a great kid. As a toddler, two years old, we take him to the record store on Fridays when his dad got paid and buy him a forty-five of his liking. And they, at that time, they played music for you when you entered the store. If you wanted what they were playing and they played it continuously, you would get that. But otherwise, they introduced you to what was new on the market or what secret you had. And the people in the record store knew him because we were religious on the Fridays to get that, that 45 for him. So he'd go to the park with his 45s on his arm, Fisher Price in hand, portable, and play his music for all the adults that were in Harmony Park, downtown Detroit. Thank you so much. And a quick note, if you guys want to submit any questions via the South By Q app, um, you could also upvote the questions that you like, and then we'll be taking some Q&A at the end uh, with as much time as we have left. A quick follow-up, um, how did your son influence and uplift his community and friends? Jeez, uh, I'll tell you. He wanted, uh, he was very giving. Uh, he would help anyone. He would help anyone, should I say, that was sure that music was what they wanted to do. He had no patience for people that hum hawed about things or wasn't sure if you weren't dedicated or if he gave you time to be at the house to work and you were late, that would be your last time coming to the house. And he let you know before you leave that, well, you're not serious. I don't have time for this. I'm sorry. And that would be it. I don't care how close you were a friend, you weren't ready. 
and he had no patience. He was like a scientist. It had to be on point. It had to be right. He had no time for nonsense. Thank you so much, Maureen. And um, Jeff, <laughs> such an icon yourself. Um, we'd love to hear you talk about, you know, your experiences with Dilla and maybe play some music. Oh, wow. Um, so I remember being in L.A. and uh, I was listening to the radio. And I'm not sure if it was J-Rock or if it was Melody but somebody played I Don't Know on the radio, and I lost it. Just what is this? This is the greatest thing I've ever heard compiled together in music. And I called the radio station, and they told me who it was. Um, and about two weeks later, I was working on something, and Common came to the studio, and I started talking to Common. And he was just like, do you know him? And I was like, no. So Common picked up the phone. And called him on the phone, and we ended up talking on the phone for about an hour just about music. And, you know, the, the, you, hey, man, you know how the record store is out in Philly? And I'm like, they're great. And, you know, so he ended up flying to Philly, and I remember picking him up from the airport. Um, and this kind of goes to show you the love of music that I didn't know his last name. <laughs> and he flew, and I picked him up. The only thing that we knew is we're going record shopping. We are best friends right now. But we, you know, I, and I picked him up and drove to the house, and Kenny Dope came down from New York, and we got in the car at 1 o'clock in the morning and drove from Philly to Pittsburgh. And we pulled over at a motel, and we crashed for about two hours, and we woke up, went to IHOP, and pulled up to the record store as the doors opened. And we stayed in the record store until the doors closed. We went up the street to get something to eat. Um, but it was about five of us in a Lincoln Navigator. And we didn't realize we had to get those records home. Because when we came out, there were literally human-sized stacks of records that everybody had. Um, needless to say, we did not leave one record. That was probably the most uncomfortable trip I've ever had. <laughs> I remember Dilla laying across a bunch of albums in the back of a Navigator, but we were bringing them records home. You know, that just goes to show the love. But it was probably one of the greatest digging musical joys that I had to have Dilla on one side, Kenny Dope on one side, and they were like, listen, we're going to make you a pile. Like, because I had stopped digging for records for about five years and I felt completely out of the loop and they were like, we're going to get you back in the loop really quick. <laughs> so to watch these piles of records um, and it's amazing because I have a section in the studio of those piles of records that he got for me wow. that um, that I, I will always remember. But that, you know, pretty much the the music journey, you know, he would literally call me, you know, there was a like a $39 flight from Detroit to Philly that he would call me and say, I'm coming. He would get on the flight. I would go to the airport. I would pick him up. I would drive him to South Street because I introduced him to a jeweler. The chain that he has on to the Welcome to Detroit, I took him to get. He would, we would go record shopping. I would get him a cheesesteak. We would go to the studio until his flight was getting ready to leave, and he would go back home the same day. Wow. Wow. So, you know, I, I mean, I've had some amazing, amazing times with him just 
watching him work. Um, I didn't realize until later on that Dilla never left the house. Dilla did. He was not really good. A lot of the records that we love about Dilla were two tracks. Dilla would make the beat and say, listen, I did my job. You put what you want to put on top of it. Um, and I didn't realize how special it was that the record that Dilla did for me on my album, he came to Philly and did it in the studio. Well, multi-track? Yes. Oh, listen, I got a chance to watch him do that. Yeah. Like literally in 15 minutes, he might have came in the studio with four records and made the entire song off oh, of these wow. four records. No diss, got the drums off of the record, got everything off of the record, and then rapped on it. So, like... He's the goat. <laughs> There's a, actually a picture of you, Kenny, and yeah. Dilla, yeah, in the Escalade, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was before we put the records in. What year was that? I don't know. Like I'm super 2000s? bad with you. Uh, probably it? like 2000 or something? Somewhere like that. It was a new Navigator. And with us, he never, I never saw him create a song. Actually, no, I take that back, but it's not my turn yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep the conversation flowing. Should yeah. we hear some music? Yeah. Uh, wolf, <laughs> peanut butter wolf for those. <laughs> um, we'd love to discuss the Stones Throw Dilla era. Maybe talk about the making of donuts. Donuts. Oh, we're going forward, like <laughs> to his talk last about the album. Past and the, yeah. <laughs> um, donuts. Yeah, that's. I mean, donuts is simple. It was basically like we were. I don't. I don't. Were you in the car with us when? Dilla, he gave me a CD of Beats, and we were... We were pizza Man. Well, there was Pizza Man, there was Donuts. I mean, basically, he had this series of beat tapes where it was always, like, named after, like, unhealthy food, and Donuts was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> always, he always had a sense of humor, but, um, yeah, I mean, actually, that reminds me of another time when he was not doing as well, and he was in the hospital, and he asked me... Um, to bring him some food, and and well, I, I was I was talking to you, <laughs> and you asked him what he wanted, and he asked for Burger King. <laughs> um, which yeah, what are, where am I trying to go with this? Anyways, yeah, do donuts. <laughs> You're hungry. <laughs> yeah, I know. Now I want Burger King. Um, donuts, yeah, it was, we basically, we were, um, going record shopping and it, it, I thought you were in the car if you weren't, yeah, okay, so it was me and Madlib and someone else and he just gave me the CD and, and he just, you know, I just threw it on and I, I was just like really blown away. Um, you know, we had already done J-Lib together with him, which was Madlib and Jay Dilla's album where half the album, yeah, I kind of want to talk about those things, but anyways, um, yeah, we had done the J-Lib album and that was like, we were so excited when we did the J-Lib album and it was kind of, and we kind of spent a lot of money on it for being an independent label, like more than, you know, more than, more than well, yeah, but you know, it didn't really do that well. And after that I was thinking, man, he's not going to want to work with us anymore, but he, he moved to LA, um, yeah, I remember he called me and he was like, "Yo, Wolf, I'm I'm gonna be moving to LA. I got a, 
I, I got an offer to score a movie for Spike Lee and I have to be in LA for it. And, you know, I'm just like, I, I just, I just want to change your pace and I'm going to live in LA and I couldn't believe it. And, you know, he, he's, he's like, yeah, I'm going to stay with common and, you know, we're going to work a lot and stuff. And that's what happened. And yeah, as far as the donuts though, he like played the beats in the car and I was just like, wow, this is just crazy stuff, man. Like, and I really wanted to put it out kind of as it was. I, I felt, you know, we didn't really talk about what it was. I, I assumed it was another beat tape for him to shop to different MCs and stuff. And and I, I told him, well, what if, what if we just put this out as is and then, you know, you can still shop the beats to, to MCs? Because honestly, like, our budgets were not anywhere near. I mean, he got more from one beat with a major label than he would get you know, from us to do a whole album. And so that was kind of what we worked out. And I remember as he got sick, um, this was after the record came out, but I, I remember, well, I'm sorry, no. It was after it was finished, not not after it came out. It was finished in the, the wintertime, and then we ended up pushing the album back to have it out during his birthday. But I just remember you were... You called me and you said, uh, there's an MC, Ghostface Killer, who wants to, to do something on one of the tracks. You, you think that would be good? And I'm like, please do that, yes. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I, 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 I really was, like, thankful and appreciative that you, like, trusted me, like, to, you know, just on, on some of the, the, on the music side as well a little That's bit, right. you know. I mean, uh, yeah. Well, I must respond on that real quick. It won't take but a second. But you were truly family and for me, and I was able to still breathe and, and get from day to day because of Stone's Throw and because of your allegiance to Dilla, the brotherhood that he had with you guys. And you were a king in the industry because you always gave an artist their full creative ability. You never tried to tell them what they should do what would complement their records because it's one thing to write the check to do a project, but any time you want to point direction to a creator that's doing these things, you, know, you don't have a solid project anyway. You don't have the soul of the artist, but you have something that maybe will not do good. And I always believe in full creativity for any artist. Definitely. And, and well, with Dilla, it was easy because everything he showed me was good. So I didn't have to be involved at all. But, like, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I lost my train of thought. It was it was just a, a crazy time. And, you know, the, the donuts thing, it was when we when we put it out, um, we got a lot of criticism at first because I'm sorry, this was not when we put it out. It was when we first gave it to the press and they were like we were getting bad reviews you know we got a bad review from one of the um the biggest music publications and they were saying that it it just it didn't have any flow it went all over the place and it was like one minute of this and then one minute of that and then it's like scary and then it's like sad and you know and it wasn't it was different when it came out and people weren't ready for it but but the people we knew were more than ready for it. And then when he passed away, then people 
listen to it in a different way, I think. And Shall we hear some music? Let's play some play some donuts, some, yeah. Play some donuts. <laughs> that makes sense. That that song in particular. No, I was just gonna say there's like so much going on. I when I heard it, that was probably the first song that he played in the car too. But when I heard it, I couldn't even envision somebody on top of it because it was already finished. It was already full. Like why why add a vocal to it? You know. So from that standpoint, I thought maybe he was giving me it to like we didn't we never really we didn't talk about his intention for giving it to me. It was just like let's p listen to this in the car, basically. You know. Um, Thank you. Um, such interesting stories. It's, it's really amazing to hear um, how this all kind of came together. Uh, J-Rock, uh, we'd love to sort of hear from you and talk about maybe some of the technical knowledge of how Dilla created music. Maybe you can touch on that. Um, I was there a few times to watch him. He would, one thing I always remember, he would kick people out the studio if you ain't have nothing to do with the music. <laughs> He would definitely be like, man, get off the couch, man. Um, I've seen that a few times. Um, I've watched him, just like Jeff, create something out of thin air. Uh, like, I would always go to the house where Common lived and visit Ma Dukes and visit Dylan and just sit on this. They had this stool, and I would just sit there, and he had red vines and... And we would just hang out, and we would listen to stuff. And he would just grab, he would have records already in his mind, and he'd be like, ah, oh, I need a snare. And then he'll just grab something and just be like, Ch -ch 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 -ch, there's my snare. All right, I need something else. And then he'll grab something else. And there was a few times where I would just watch him, just like, dang, I'm watching Jay Dilla make a beat right now. What's going on over here? Yeah, always have to keep it to yourself. <clears throat> always, like, <laughs> always, always. But I would geek. I, I, I would definitely, uh, I'll say geek up. I would be a nerd with him. When I first was hanging out, I would always, like, say, yo, Dilla, man. Um, how come? Uh, I never asked for samples or nothing. I was like, never said, what you sample for this? But I would always go, how come your keyboard beats are always... It's either, I always get confused because sometimes I would think that's a sample, but it's really you playing. And then when I would think it was you playing, it was a sample. And he'd be like, ah, ah that's it. <laughs> that was like, always it. man, all right. That's all I would get. Yeah. But as far as like production and stuff, I got to the point where he trusted me with uh, knowing music and he would hit me up sometimes and be like, Yo, J-Rock, you got something I need? Uh, I'm supposed to do Sergio Mendez. You got something Sergio Mendez for me? Or I would just go over there, hype that I found a record, and be like, yo, man, you got to listen to this. And then he'd be like, man, I've been looking for that. And I'm like, okay, all right, all right. But his production technique, like I said, he would just little snap, little snare here, um, and I don't know his mind, his thoughts, and how he would chop. And but I could definitely watch him and just be there for like 30 minutes, 40 minutes, and he would beat would be done. And um, the only thing I I would have to say is I missed him playing the keyboards on the stuff because he didn't have the keyboard, the Voyager. He had a Moog Voyager, and when he was in L.A., he didn't have that. He just had 
some little couple things there just to make beats and just to chop and but he was super hype when he got that Voyager to LA. He was like, Oh, it's on J Rock. Oh man, I'm about to but um I got greedy and I told him I want you to do a whole album like just using that and just make it like weird, like you know, no drama well, behind it did. or anything. Him and Riggins actually made a whole project where they both just vibed out and just played yep. keyboards forever and um he was a, he was just incredible. We're all here because of the guy, you know what I mean? So he was just an incredible cat. Um I can't give too much of his production secrets away, but he definitely <laughs> they can't knew, do it. He definitely knew he de- his chopping was always um the even just with that working on it, all the pieces that he heard and if you know that original song, you know it's like one part's here at one minute, one part's at uh, a minute 40 in the song, one part's at two minutes and 30 seconds, one part is like every, he he would go through the whole record and find each part that he would want and to work with. And it was just amazing watching him do that. Um, go ahead, Joe. Well, you know what was crazy is Dilla used an MPC 3000. Yep. Anybody that knows about these machines, the MPC 3000 didn't have a waveform on it. It was numbers. Yep. Like right now, you can pull up a sample and look at the waveform and know where you want to cut it. These were numbers. He was cutting this with his ears, not his eyes. Yeah. 100%. He's a, he was a beast, man. Um, I, want, I, I have one track. I gave him this record. Uh, Disco one. I gave him this record. When I came over, I was like, yo, I just found this record, man. I've been looking for this forever, man. You know this one? And then I, <clears throat> excuse me, I played it for him, and he just was like, same here. I've been looking for this record too, J Rock. <laughs> I was like, all right. So I left it with him. And then um, my boy C minus and Mr. Chalk called me like three hours later. And I just missed them at the house. And they're like, yo, we just watched Dilla. You gave Dilla a record? And I was like, yeah, 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 all the time, man. Ain't nothing. Man, he just made a beat out of that. I was like, word? He made out a beat out of disco dub band? And it's like this. New York random ass. It's not even a great song, but it's a good song. But it's no, it, it has parts that are great. But yeah, but once he song. touches, once he touches something, that's what hip hop. Like. It's a whole new thing. Like it makes you want. Oh man, I, I need that record now. Absolutely. Or he just made. It's like a Mad Lib. You just wanted the original just to hear their thought process. What they did to it. What they did to it. So. um this is one of the records I showed up at the house. I mean, Common used to tell me to be quiet. I was always over there loud. I'm like, man, when J-Rock come over, it's always loud over here, man. <laughs> man, J-Rock always loud over here, man. But I would be hype. I'm hanging with the homie. You know, like, that was my boy. At the, at the, by then, that was the homie. Like, so. But we uh, already looked up to him before we met Wave, him. Yeah, so, yeah. Like, yeah, it was like just weird it was just weird yeah so uh, this is one of the records i gave him uh disco dub band is the is the name of the record and man he just the way he chopped it and just was incredible and then this record right here I w- another one i went to his crib okay i went to his crib with this one and i mean it was just an honor just to be able to go over to guy's house and say hey man um uh, how did you feel when he asked you to be his DJ? 
Man, that was all jealous. from. Um, I was jealous. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you didn't live in LA. J Rock got the job because he lived in California. Yeah. That was a little yeah. bit too far. Yeah, definitely. That's I, the only actually. <laughs> yeah, I lived in California. Hold on, people. I'm sorry. Let me. Uh, actually, yeah, play this real quick. Play uh, like right around here. Let's jump to. So this is actually how. This is the first time. I met Dilla. So that was the first time, like, Dilla heard me DJ, period, really, like, in, a, in that kind of atmosphere of just rocking his doubles or his originals. And so that was what made me be his DJ. Like, yo, man, that J-Rock dude was kind of nice with it, man. So he told Madlib, he told Wolf. Yep. And then I just ended up being his DJ. I mean, to have, for you to have to DJ on commercial radio is scary enough. And then you got Dilla, like, watching you. <laughs> The reason we said where Madlib go, because Madlib just disappeared and left Dilla by himself to be interviewed. He was like, I'm out. And that was it. Yeah. So that was during J-Lib then. That was that was right beginning of J-Lib. 2003, yep. probably. Mm -hmm. Wow. These are really, really incredible stories. Um, I'd love to also discuss how we can carry on Dilla's legacy. What should the music industry do to invest in the culturally rich communities that contributed to the popular music that propels the success of the music industry? Break through systematic barriers to provide career paths for young artists and creators, for instance, um, the work that Save the Music does. Maureen, I'd love to hear from you. Oh. Don't be sorry. Yes. <laughs> okay. I'll tell you what they should do. Not just the general public, but the industry needs to invest in Save the Music. They have the Dilla Tech Grant. This tech grant is fire. The youth, no, I'm serious. I'm, I'm, I know I'm aged. No, nah, you good. But I got an ear. You, I got you an right ear. on point. And let me tell you, I go to every single one of the schools that have an opening for me to come to talk to the children, to not children, but young adults, uh, to vibe with them, to listen to them to encourage them because Dilla would do the same if he were here. And myself, now I'm the voice of Dilla. Some people don't like it. I'm a warrior, though. And I'm going to make sure that every young person, along with Save the Music Foundation, has an opportunity to not only be a creator in this world, because music is the soul, soul-saving thing for a lot of people in a lot of different industries, but music is a healing balm, and it also can accelerate academia. Please remember that. Save the music is the key. Now, you hear a key to the city. It's the key to the minds of young people that are talented, that were born creators, that have not had the opportunity because there is no cultural or fine arts in any neighborhood schools in this country. They're all hungering for that creativity, for that outlet. Parents can't afford it. It's so hard to even feed your children. And you cannot rally around enough people that care enough that are in, should I say, in politics. Politics loses its way when it comes to young people. That must be a priority because they are the future. 
And if you want civilized, socialized people, you will give them the nourishment they need, and that is through an outlet that they hunger for. They hunger for music. They hunger for the fine arts. They hunger to be the picture of the beautiful things of this world. Save the Music is that catalyst. It is that vessel that will filter through this United States of America, and I'm hoping, hoping that it's going to be beyond that. It's going to be global soon because this is what we need. I've seen it. It's in action. It's true, and it works. You must pay attention. You must give. You must support. I cannot say enough about it, but I relish this job. It is to make sure that Dilla's dream comes alive, that more young people can be the full self, to be the whole child, the whole individual. Everybody doesn't become the whole child sometime until adulthood. I know it didn't. For me, I had to go back to college again, you know, for early childhood education and to change my, you know, what I did for my job and everything. But young people, I know the children are my heartstrings and I know that they are talented and they're giving and they're warm and they're true. They don't have an agenda against anybody. They just have love. And we have to give them a way to show it and to share it. The world needs more of it to share. So we have to be conscious about what we do. We have to be an advocate for young people. We have to make sure that they have the things that are necessary in life. And these things we've had in older generations, it was a common thing that you, you, know, you would play instruments or uh, have classes in fine arts, arts, and, and uh, different types of talented and music and different things, a vocalist. There are so many, so many avenues. But the Dilla Tech Grant opens up more than just that, than just for the artist that sings or, or produces. There are so many, so many jobs available for them in different aspects of music and production. And we have to awaken the minds of, a, of a parents that this is not a bad thing. This is something good. So if your child may not be well-rounded in one thing, they have another avenue that they can be a part of. And I'm telling you, I bet a dollar to a dime that they would give it their all to this if they were a part of something like that. So Save the Music is a, it's a catalyst for a better world for our young people. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, a shout out to Save the Music, of course. It's the 25th anniversary and a huge shout out to the 50th anniversary of hip hop. Round of applause for that. It's crazy. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of great examples about what Save the Music did. For instance, um, take the Behringer High School in Newark, where out of 1,500 kids, a thousand of them, a thousand of them signed up for the Dilla Tech Grant program. I mean, there's a need for this. Um, I think one thing that we had discussed is that there's a challenge to get more schools involved. Um, it's a new program, you know, it's, it's production, it's not banned. So there's sort of this lack of sense of urgency from the higher ups. So people say, you know, yes, I'd love music education in schools, right? I mean, across the aisle, but then there's not this urgency to sort of do something about it and actually fund it, and then we sort of start from scratch. Um, you know, what would you think, how can we communicate this urgency to build wealth and equity in the communities that really deserve us, that give us the music, to give back to those people that actually create this music? How, how do we, you know, what else can we do? 
I think one of the things that we can do is just take a look at our past. You know, like my Duke said, you know, when I was in school, we had music programs. I took music lessons. I took violin lessons. I didn't care about the violin. I just liked music so much. I wanted to pick an instrument to see if I could learn how to do. I, you know, I played the violin. I played the drums. I played the saxophone. Um, but it, it starts, it has to start somewhere. You know, most of the people, you know, in this room didn't know what they wanted to do with their life at six years old, at 10 years old. You're trying to figure it out. But if you take all of the music out of the schools, you, you're, you're taking away a whole bunch of stuff that kids can try to figure out what they want to do or are they good at it, you know? And I think, you know, one of the first ways that you can fix it is go back to the time when it wasn't a problem and ask yourself, what were we doing then? We had music in the schools. They got rid of all the music programs for the minorities, though, I would have to say, like, in in the neighborhoods, the the... The people of color, I will just say, their schools are have been defunded for the most part. Um, there's no, you know, maybe they'll have band for the football team or something. But I know when I was growing up, I had I played the piccolo. I didn't play anything else. Played the piccolo flute. So, <laughs> so. Um, I got a little little uh, teaching with that, and that was because at that and when we were growing up they didn't gut all those music programs that were helping the the kids and 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 I agree at 6 and 10 you don't know what you want to do but you know what you're influenced by you know what you kind of like you hear like I know when I was a little kid I didn't know I wanted to be a DJ but I loved music I I just loved I Diana Ross part I just loved the music so much that I would bug my parents kind of like Dilla's like you know my dukes here like i need records your grades are bad you ain't getting no records son be like oh come on now i'm going to get some records still and i would take my lunch money and go buy records i, I wouldn't tell my parents i just would buy the records but i i just think that we just need to um you know just let it be vocal about getting these programs back into the school and and letting people know that they're important for not just the people of color communities, but everybody needs some type of music program or something at your school where you can touch, even just touch a piano or just pick up a drumstick and go just to even be able to experience something like that. You never know. It might just click something in your head and you're like, Oh man, I'm kind of good at going, you know? So yeah, I just think it just that we just need to be more vocal and, and, Thankfully, save the music. The people over there are actually are are being vocal, and they're and they're putting some money by some money behind it, and, and letting it be known. Like what what Compton didn't they do a school in Compton where they yep. hooked everything up for the for the kids out yeah, there? Yeah, man, three schools and hundreds of students in Compton turned this into a career track, yes. and that's that's huge. And that's just one community. If y'all know about Compton, Compton ain't no joke. So. <laughs> But you travel, you travel everywhere, kind of for this as well. Yes. Like you, you actually meet the students. And oh yes, I, I love them because they come true and honest. I can read them. You know, moms can read kids. You know, I always tell mine. 
I got eyes in the back of my head, so I know what you're doing when I'm not turning your way, and, and you just have that instinct, but they are so hungry to connect with somebody that understands them. And there are so many wonderful, wonderful individuals that are cornered into a group that are hard to deal with children, but they, they're like, boxed in, and, and it's so many creative, wonderful-minded children. They, they already they came for this purpose, to, to bless the world with what their gifts are. And they have a ceiling because we're not listening as a whole in this country. Dilla had no ceiling. That's why he was, people thought he was like not sure what he wanted to do. He knew what he was doing. He spent his entire life, he knew at two years old what he was going to do, and I never, and I tried my best sent him to aeronautics high school and everything. He aced all of that, and it still was like, <laughs> and then he was like, you know, it's like, I don't care what you make me do, I'm going to do my music. He did you what know, he was supposed it, to do. Yeah, so he, he knew. Uh, he knew that he had to kind of close my mouth a little bit, and I was just worried about him not making it in the world because his dad was a musician. Mm. And even though he was a musician for 25 years, he still had to work at Ford Motor every day. Right. So, you know, I wanted more for him. But uh, he came here, he knew his purpose. He was here a short time, but he came and fulfilled his, his duties. And God bless Dilla for, my, for changing my life. You know, people say, Jay Dilla changed my life. I truly understand because he truly changed mine. And uh, I'm still an advocate for youth, but I want them to expound upon their gifts that they come with. And I want their parents to know it's okay because you gifted the world with something. Let them explore and learn and give purpose to what their gifts are. So yes, we, we need to listen, parents, and uh, we need to know, and uh, even if it turns you from a classical music parent to a hip hop head. <laughs> I think we have a little bit of time for Q&A. Um, I'm sorry, how does this work? Does pe do people come up or do they send excuse? Oh yeah, okay, so. Any questions? Anybody yes. got questions? Oh, we got a lot of people coming up. Cool. Gentleman was here first, so please. Hi, my name is Kasim Joseph. I'm a student from Colorado State University of Pueblo. Um, this question is going to be for, um, first of all, I want to let you know a little bit of how I know Joy Dilla. So Slum Village. I used to pump Slum Village when I was younger, and I used to love the, I used to love that. And then... Once I met my favorite rapper of all times, number one, Busta Rhymes, I was like, okay, Jay Dillard, I'm sorry, the shit, you know what I mean? Um, the reason why I'm talking about this is because I'm doing a paper. I'm studying, I'm doing a class for MIDI and synthesizing. And my MIDI synthesizing class wanted me to do a paper on um, donuts. And so happened to be, I got, the I got everybody I need right here to finish my paper, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? First of all, Thank you, Mom Dilla, for doing what you do. Um, thank you for, for um... Mom Dilla, yeah. Instilling that, instilling that you got to go to school. Even though you want to do your music, you got to go lead that way. My mom is the same exact way. My mom says that, Kasim, I know you want to do your art and music, but you have to stay in school, so I want to thank you so much for that. Um, J-Rock, um, being a DJ... I follow you. You know what I'm trying to say, bro? Um, the reason why is because the thing that you did with Jay Dillard was classic. I mean, before Kate, before Kanye West even thought about sampling, we had Jay Dillard, you know what I mean? So everything that came, everything that you've done, I mean, I had to follow your footsteps. 
I was just going to say, fun fact, you mentioned Kanye. Kanye would go to Dilla's and ask for drums and, and ask for, like, yo, Dilla, I need some drums, man. And Dilla would be like, all right, man, you ain't going to do what I do with them. <laughs> <laughs> all the time. There's room for all of it. I just, this question I wanted to ask is about um, the album Donuts. Um, while I did my research, I heard that the mom Dilla literally had to massage his fingers to um, put his beat on, put his, do his beats. Can you, um, um, and I'm pleased, I don't mean to go in there a little deep, but can you tell me to, to, to describe his emotion, how he was about completing that album? He was uh, headstrong. He worked endlessly. There was no, he was used to not sleeping. He would nap and maybe nap every couple days. So I really st had to stay on him to, to take a nap or to nourish his body. But what was most important was whatever he was working on. So yes, he, he would have times that uh, his fingers would not want to work and uh, he had to have a massage. And you know, I just did whatever I needed to do, you know, just work the back of his neck, his shoulders, whatever, whatever it was necessary, even to cradle him during his pain. It was necessary. That was my child. I was blessed with him, and he was sent here to bless the world. And that's all I care. Thank you so much. We'll take one more question. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to Austin. I just want to say it's an honor to kind of like for, ha for having you here today. Um, my specific question was about the track Reunion. And uh, there's a line that's that stuck out to me about the track where it's uh, it says, like, all of my peeps that rep more D than 12 M&Ms. I kind of wanted to know a little bit the context about that track, if y'all have any information for us. Uh, was there any confrontation with Crossing with the D12 back in Detroit or Eminem uh, in the early days? Because I can't find anything on it. So I'm you want the tea? Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, 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 well, no, I don't know about that beef, but I, 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 uh, maybe I'm wrong here, but mm -hmm. when Dilla passed, didn't Eminem send you a, a photo, yes. Dilla, that Eminem took? Yes, uh, Eminem and ago? Paul Ro Rosenberg sent me a um, picture of Dilla that I cherish. Um, and it was at a studio, at M. Phillips Studio, actually, uh, when they were younger. All of the guys were around 17, 18. And uh, I, I cherish that. Uh, Paul Rosenberg and Eminem came to my house every day wow. for a couple of years. Uh, matter of fact, yeah, more than a couple of years, but at 5.45 they were there waiting for my last child to leave my daycare. Uh, but they closed at 6, and Dilla had the house from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And uh, my daycare opened at 6 a.m., so like, I was in a tizzy trying to clean up, make sure there was no Moet bottles downstairs, okay, <laughs> before my parents came in. And uh, What so year was, was this around? Thing. This was like... Oh, geez, the early, well, when, after he signed and everybody was coming to the house to get their albums done during yeah. the year because especially Madhouse during Thanksgiving and Christmas because the industry, December 15th, you know, every, it was nothing happening after that. Yeah. So you had to have your project in. So my house was full of artists. And so we had to bowl a lot and stay out of the way <laughs> and do whatever. But it was just a, a common thing. But Eminem and Paul Rosenberg were there every day. Um, you know, during that time. So, no, there was no beef then. There was a supposed project that was going to happen, but Dilla became sick. And I don't think Eminem knew that why Dilla couldn't fulfill that. 
because he was ill and uh, very ill. But, you know, he didn't tell, make it common knowledge. But, yes, um, everything was good. They were very respectful and uh, always prompt, so I never had a problem with them. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and a question from the South by Southwest Go app, um, one of the ones that we wanted to choose from Sherry Goodall, I believe. Uh, Ma Dukes, um, this is a little unfortunate. Um, she lost her daughter in November, and she's been asked to create a scholarship or program in her honor. Um, where and how did you start with creating your son's legacy? And I'm sorry to hear that. If you're here, apologize for that. Okay. Where and how? Well, you could have answered this. I, I first began uh, to support my son through the jdillafoundation.org, which was established in California, because that's where I had moved to take care of Dilla um, during his time there. And uh, Jay Barber, who was the president of the foundation for me, uh, he put it together. We spent a lot of time. He was very sympathetic. He knew that I cared for children and I had, had daycare, oh, did, had daycare for like over 30 years. And uh, his mom was a day, daycare you know, provider, so we had that in common and spent a lot of time together. Asia was the vice president of my foundation at the time. And she, of course, she's always been too busy, but she always found time to help and do whatever. And then when I moved back to Detroit, I had to reestablish it uh, in Detroit, you know, to find common ground with people that I could work with. And uh, so now it's still jdellafoundation.org. For those of you that can't remember this, James DeWitt Yancey Foundation.org, because I changed his uh, the foundation name to that when he went into the Smithsonian National Museum. So that's uh, one reason I changed it. I wanted to honor him. It's his surname, and I wanted to honor his dad as well because his name was DeWitt Yancey, and that was to honor his dad for giving all of his time and, and knowledge to my son during his growing years, and it just lifted the Yancey uh, legacy. So, yes, I appreciate uh, the works that he did, and uh, that's all I can say about that. Yes, and he's still going strong. We working directly hand in hand with the Save the Music Foundation, and it's family all the way around. We understand and we understand the needs of the communities. We care about those that are not fortunate enough to have their private lessons or whatever, and go to the most prominent schools. But we know that we have the greatness within the communities that we serve, and we thank we thank you for your support. That I'm sure you'll all be wanting to help to do in the future. Thank you. Thank you. I believe we have time for only one more question. I know time really flies. Um, who's got a really good one? <laughs> um, may I ask a question? Yes, I, I would love to hear from a like female. <laughs> um, my name is Christine Nguyen. I am a student from Columbia College, Chicago. I know there's a couple of us in here, so shout out to Chicago. Um, we'll be graduating in May, so that's exciting. Um, I wanted to touch based on you know the conversation of cultivating these spaces for young adults and um, just students you know before going to college there's not really like programs or you know classes that teaches you about financial literacy and so when you don't have access to you know learning about investing and you know like the financial side of the music business you know a question that I always think about is how would how are young adults able to navigate, um, you know, learning about those type of topics, 
if they want to step into the business and entrepreneurship side. <laughs> Wolf, I think you. I know. Well, there's, I mean, there are a lot of books, obviously. Um, I mean, there's the internet. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's, yeah, there's a lot of ways, like, to learn about it. I'm not sure um, specifically what, um, what the question is like. <laughs> I mean, Basically, I think um, maybe to rephrase, maybe you're asking, yeah. you know, the music, the music business is shady. Let's just say it like that. Right. And basically you're like, how can I be prepared yeah. um, right. getting out of school to yeah. perhaps getting a job or creating your own business? And yeah, are um, you are you trying yeah. to be on the artist side or on the um, um, management and management. booking agency? Yeah, that's good. We need more of those. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I, I, I've always it's always for me. I, um, my degree actually was in marketing, but I, I feel like I ran my label like anti-marketing. Everything I learned, I did at the opposite. So um, with the management. Yeah, I mean, you really just need to find some artists that you believe in and who believe in you in terms of being um, organized and having, you know, being a good communicator. And you just, I mean, you just take baby steps and, and it all grows. I mean, for for me, um, when I was in college, I, I was, I, I went, I basically, I got involved in the hip hop radio station and I met some people who liked the same music that I did. And um, I was making music at the time and I like, we basically each like put $500 in and made a record and it flopped. And, you know, we learned a lot from that, like, the record, we didn't know how, how to, or we didn't know what, that mastering was a thing. And, you know, it sounded super muddy. Now it's like one of those rare records on Discogs. It's like $500. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I, I'm always just like, like you were saying about Dilla, like he didn't have time for people who were half-assing it. Like if you're all the way in, you learn the industry as, kind of as you go along, you know. If you're an artist, I, I would say... Um, if you're gonna, if it's hard to get your name out there, maybe like do one song or something. Um, I'm not gonna say necessarily for free. For me, like I, I did a lot of a lot of my earliest records that I put out as an artist. I was doing it for free, but it wasn't like long term um, commitments. And you know, as you get power um, uh, and you you get a name, then then you're able to negotiate like better terms and stuff. Also, I just wanted to, um, it's not part of Save the Music, but there's an organization called Women in Music. I've been part of it for over 12 years, and it's a nonprofit. We've been around for almost 40 years. Highly recommended to get involved in those types of, you know, community-based, um, national and local kind of organizations like Women in Music. But um, we're running out of time, which is insane, and I'm so sorry. I know you guys had some questions, um, but I would love to thank... Everybody on this panel, it's been really incredible and such an honor to be here with you guys. And uh, the, the Jay Dilla Grant is extremely special. And we have a gift for you, Ma Dukes. Ma, Mama Dilla. From, from Save the Music, thank you so much. Thank you. Mama Dilla. And I guess we'll wrap it up with some beats from Dilla. Thank you guys.